From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Hello in person. All in one room. It's very rare. Very rare. It's great to see you guys. I did not uh, expect to be driving through a blizzard to uh, attend this introduction session, but it was all worth it. I'm legitimately surprised that you went through with it. I was uh, very ready for the, like, you guys, it's snowing. I'm clearly not coming. Usually when I'm supposed to go into the city and um, there's a snowstorm, the person I'm going to meet is like, oh, don't come. Be safe. You guys didn't offer me that courtesy, so here I am. It's from years of training of knowing that if you'd like to bail, you'll bail. Yeah, you know? okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, who's on the show this week? I'll tell you who didn't bail. Susan Glasser. Susan Glasser, she's got a, a pretty incredible career, you guys. She started at Roll Call. Then she worked at the Washington Post for 10 years. Four of those, she was the bureau chief in... Moscow. Then she went to Politico. She was the founding editor-in-chief of Politico magazine. Then she was the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy. And now she writes a weekly column about life in Washington for The New Yorker. But that is not it. She has also written three books, one about Russia, one about Jim Baker, and then a book that came out in 2022 called The Divider about the Trump presidency. She's written each of those with her husband, Peter Baker, who's the White House correspondent at the New York Times. And that is also not it. Do you guys remember when I interviewed Theo Baker last year for the Polk Awards, the uh, Stanford kid who did all that incredible reporting? Susan's his mom. I did not. uh, You did not prepare me for that this was going to be. Is this the first intergenerational podcast, I guess, that we've done? It's not the first intergenerational podcast, but she did do the work to confirm that she is the first mom who has followed... A child oh, on the show. Yes, yes, always. <laughs> First parent who has followed a child, probably. Yeah, I think so. It was uh, she, she. She took that in stride, and uh, and she was also very game to talk about what this moment is like for someone who is trying to cover Washington and politics. Someone who literally wrote the book on Trump. We talked uh, shortly after the Iowa caucuses, just before the New Hampshire primary, and uh, she tried to help me make sense of how she is making sense of what we're all in for. One way I make sense of how to make this show is with the help of the good people at Vox. They are our partners. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. 
And now here's Max with Susan Glasser. Hi, Susan. Hey there. How are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? Great. Great to be with you. Uh, it's good to be with you, too. I think that was a lie. I'm only, I'm, I'm only sort of okay. Because? Well, I, uh, I'm a little freaked out. I'm a little freaked out about the year that we have ahead of us. You and I are talking uh, two days after the Iowa caucuses, a week before the New Hampshire primary. And I feel like, um, I don't know whether I'd been ignoring what was happening, avoiding what was happening, but something about the Iowa caucuses hitting made me realize that this election really is happening. So I think I called you to do this in part because I feel like I need a little help. <laughs> the problem is, is that I also need a little help. You know, this is a, the only year I can think of in my entire life that began with a sort of like, stop the train, I want to get off feeling to it. You know, could we just like jump over uh, and, you know, skip ahead to the results? So although, of course, you know, my husband very cheerily said to me when I made this point, he said, well, you know, think of it this way. 2024 could be the best year of the next five years. Oh, so it's only going to get worse from here. Well, uh, you know, uh, we did spend four years in Russia, so, uh, you know, we know about gloomy scenarios. Um, but look, you know, it's uh, generally speaking, actually, it's it's really a departure because one thing I learned uh, when I was an editor is that January is actually normally a time of excessive positive thinking and good expectations for the year. And that that's like, uh, you know, when you're commissioning, like, you know, big think pieces and thought pieces, like that's a huge problem is like never believe the BS that people peddle in January. So this is almost the exact opposite of that, which is that people are starting January with this huge case of what I would call anticipatory dread. And you feel that yourself? And I feel that myself. I, 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 my year-end column for The New Yorker ended with the suggestion that perhaps the only sensible thing to do would be to start the year by pulling up the covers and, you know, staying in bed. And I ran into my neighbor walking the dog the other day. I guess she's a reader. And she said, well, you got out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was hoping for a different answer. I was hoping that you were going to tell me that you are full of um, excitement, that you had a way of thinking about this job that's ahead of you for the next year that would help me find some energy for just being uh, a consumer of this election. But I guess I should give up on that hope now. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because this column for The New Yorker, this this letter from Washington, in some ways it was born out of a previous period of Trump anxiety. You know, it started after Trump became the very unlikely president. And the positive gloss I can put on it for you, let me put it this way, is that there's some, you know, recovering one's agency and, you know, that there's a power in doing what we do, which is to to write it down and to tell stories and to recognize that whatever is going to happen, at least there ought to be a, a full historical record of it. And uh, I, I did find that empowering. You know, if we're going to have to experience this anyway, <laughs> at least let's commit some journalism around it. Do you have goals for your coverage this year? Is there something you want to do? <laughs> yeah, besides get through the year, yes. Goal number one, get out of bed. That's certainly part of it. Um, it sounds sort of corny, but in some ways I've experienced a lot of the Trump years as a kind of return to first principles, whether it's first principles of journalism or constitutionality. Uh, we talk a lot more uh, about uh, the intent of the framers and, uh, you know, 
basic and what we thought of as previously settled questions of American history and politics now in this Trump era when those norms are being challenged than we used to before then. You know, the Obama era in Washington was this kind of almost a technocratic professional era. You know, it was all about behavioral economists and, you know, finding a better way to do this or that uh, government thing. And now, of course, we're back to like, oh, gee, you know, what were the conditions that led up to the Civil War? <laughs> you know, and, and what would that mean, uh, you know, in the current context? And by the way, what did they mean uh, in Reconstruction when they passed the 14th Amendment? And, you know, does their version of insurrectionist cover not only Confederates, but Trumpists as well? I mean, you know, this is really an era of first principles. And so journalistically, in a sense, I think it it's really important to, to say that this is a pretty big moment of testing for the political system and showing up and trying to make sense of what could feel like an overwhelming amount. Uh, you know, the the signal to noise ratio, uh, which is a, a favorite phrase of the sort of the foreign policy types that I've spent a lot of time with, is very, very loud in American politics. And so, you know, what can we do to, to screen through that for for readers? And that's how you think of the weekly column as a screening device? In some ways, yeah. I mean, both a recording device and uh, a navigational device, absolutely. You know, first, you want to grab on to moments and scenes and developments that matter, you know, ones that that are going to be interesting to look back on six months from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. Uh, One of the first things I did after Trump was elected, when trying to think about how was Washington going to be changed and disrupted by this. And, you know, I, like a lot of people, spent some time, you know, reading back through Watergate era stuff. And I was very taken with the collection sitting on my shelf of Elizabeth Drew's writings for The New Yorker during the culminating year of the Watergate scandal, 1974. And I found it fascinating to see how right up until the very end, there was this uncertainty in the House Judiciary Committee uh, whether the Republicans on the committee would really go along with it or not, when they would finally get off the Nixon train, and you know that it wasn't nearly as foregone a conclusion as we tend to think of it as. So I think that that is part of it. Another part of it is that in this overwhelming kind of news cycle, especially when Trump was president, there was this sort of freneticism about it, you know, and so many crazy things happened. By Friday, you couldn't remember some of the wacky shit that happened on Monday. And so recovering some of that, I think, for people, uh, but also, especially in the last couple of years, more around the clarity. Uh, you know, I think that unfortunately, it seemed pretty clear to me quite early on uh, that Donald Trump was not just going to disappear into a quiet retirement in Mar-a-Lago, despite the best efforts of of many, including in the conservative media, to to sort of pretend that the world had moved on. And so, you know, trying to be clear on the moments that that mattered over the last couple of years that led us to 2024. How do you do that when the noise is so loud? And I think part of what I was reacting to is just like I can feel the chaos returning. How do you... <laughs> practice the discipline of finding that clarity? Like in a, in a practical sense, how do you do that job? Deep sigh. That is, you know, that is a good question. And I would like to say, well, I've got this finely honed 
method and I've figured it all out and, uh, you know, here's what I do on Monday and here's what I do on Tuesday. Um, one of the challenges is how do you maintain your sanity in dealing with this while also actually being open enough to the experience of living through that, that you're not just sanguine or dismissing it out of hand, right? And so <laughs> there's a certain level of agitation required in order to genuinely react to these events. Um, but somehow doing so with enough dispassion and clarity to really say what matters and what's just kind of hyperbole. You have literally written the book on a Donald Trump presidency. Do you still get surprised? Are you still open to things changing? First of all, we we did write the book about Trump in the White House, uh, The Divider, and there was this very jarring moment when the publishers, uh, the good folks at Doubleday said, well, okay, great. The title is The Divider, Trump in the White House, but we think you should add the dates. Uh, so actually the title of the book says 2017 to 2021, which has this, especially in a 2024 context, a sort of implied threat to it, you know, that this was merely part one. We did not set out, obviously, to write The Divider with the intent or interest in writing a sequel to it. Uh, but nonetheless, that's that's a more open question than, you know, at any time in, in any of our lifetimes. Trump has a better chance of coming back to the presidency than any former president, you know, in well more than a century. And I do think that the last four years have been a period of change, both for Biden and Trump, that both of them are not running as the same guy of 2020, right? And so trying to understand where that shift is coming in, I think, has become actually a part of the the exercise. Are there aspects of this that you're genuinely curious about? You know, there are a lot of things I'm curious about, many of which are very hard to get at. For example, I think if you actually look at the coverage right now, Again, there tends to be a huge amount of noise around a small number of the same things, right? So, you know, think about how much coverage Iowa has gotten, even though the outcome was pretty much known in advance, even though Iowa, you know, I've been a critic of the caucuses for years. I mean, it's it's got a terrible track record uh, of giving, you know, a sense of who the ultimate Republican nominee is going to be. It is incredibly unrepresentative. In the end, Donald Trump's uh, triumph. That was the, the the headline being used, uh, you know, in a lot of the coverage. Triumph. Okay, the guy got fifty six thousand votes in the caucuses, and you know, think about the amount of coverage you've been exposed to, and this incredible confirmation, really, of his campaign theme, which is that I'm inevitable. Go home, Republicans. I own the party. I'm Mr. MAGA all on the basis of 56,000 votes. And he didn't even do that much campaigning to get those votes. It's, it's, you know, it's a really screwed up system. And so writing some of that down, I think, is, is, is important. Looking for other important moments, you know, being able to step outside of the frenzy of daily coverage in newspapers and, you know, op-ed pages and to say, as I tried to say pretty clearly last year, this is not a real primary. This is a pretend primary. When all of the candidates who are running against Donald Trump, quote unquote, uh, with the exception of Chris Christie and, you know, poor old Asa Hutchison, 
they they all promised to endorse Donald Trump, uh, even if he were convicted of a felony. They were running as Trumpists when the party could just go ahead and pick Trump. Why why go for the fake? Right. You had that uh, that line recently. Why why go for the fake when you can get the real thing? Yeah. Exactly. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. How do you think of your audience with the column? You know... I mean, in a way, I'm so grateful to have the the platform of The New Yorker. You know, there's a little bit of implied distance, right, in writing for The New Yorker from Washington. Uh, and so being able to set oneself up a little bit as an observer of the Washington conversation, a correspondent, if you will, right, you know, a kind of a diarist. And, um, you know, there have been great examples through history of diarists, essentially, fantastic, like World War II, you know, type accounts of what it was like. And so I think I like that kind of implied, you know, little bit of a distance, especially at a moment in time when, you know, there's been a proliferation of Washington coverage and of Washington news outlets, many of which, you know, I spent my time, you know, much of my career uh, doing that. So I started out as a, a, a reporter and then the editor of Roll Call newspaper on Capitol Hill, uh, sort of the, the prototype in some ways for a lot of these, what then became the web era things. I, you know, uh, worked at the Washington Post, but then I was uh, the editor of Politico 
during the 2016 campaign cycle. So stepping outside of that kind of inside baseball conversation to give people a feel of it, I think is implied there. Thinking about when you showed up and when you were working at Roll Call, do you think that you are more cynical about Washington now? Are you less, like what, what's your kind of default relationship to the place? And I guess embedded in that is like, you're a part of it too. So how have those years changed your sort of default view of it? Well, one thing I would say, Max, is that people often can get Washington journalists wrong because I think that they are as a group, sure, there are some cynics, but actually they are many closet idealists uh, uh, among them. And I think that's part of why you've seen, you know, this kind of tone throughout the the Trump years at, at grappling with what it means. But the truth is, like, it is it is a dark time in Washington. It used to be, it, it, it certainly felt more fun, uh, you know, that politics was uh, a different kind of a sport when I first got here in the late 80s as an intern and then coming as a full-time reporter in, in 1990. You know, the stakes in politics were very different in the immediate aftermath of the, the end of the Cold War, even if we didn't think that history was over. Uh, it, it really had a different feel than it does now, uh, where people are not only theoretically uh, thinking about and worry about political violence, but, you know, we all live through the, the cataclysms of, of 2020 and its aftermath in 2021. So I, I would say it's not definitely not that I'm more cynical, if anything. Uh, it's just it reminds me in some ways of being a foreign correspondent in, in your own country. You know, this is a moment when history is happening in a pretty unavoidable, in-your-face way in Washington. And it's a lot easier to cover, in my experience, when when it's not happening to you, uh, you know, when you have that built-in distance of it being someone else's country. Uh, well, you know, when we were there, you know, for the first four years of Putin's rule in Moscow, for example, uh, we covered the war in Afghanistan after 9-11 uh, or it, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. You know, those were, uh, you know, very defining experiences. Uh, in many ways, they were extremely hard uh, and at times even terrifying experiences, but uh, it's not the same as when it's happening uh, in your own hometown. And do you feel like you have that distance now? Well, I mean, I think you, you know, it's important to maintain enough of it uh, while also understanding that you know, there's an advantage as well to covering it when it's 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 your own country and it's your own town because you have an awareness of the stakes and you have an awareness of uh, just how different and uncomfortable this is. Uh, you know, in recent years, we wrote the book about Trump in the White House, but also this biography of Jim Baker, the former Secretary of State and Republican campaign manager. He actually ran five national Republican campaigns, uh, but of such a different era. And it was so helpful in many ways to immerse oneself in you know, Baker is a great way to look at the story of, you know, Washington in, he was involved in basically every big story of the 1980s and early part of the 1990s. And so, you know, that gives you this baseline and framework for understanding just how, how different today's Republican Party is and how different the capital is. I'm struck by how much of this conversation already has been 
steeped in history, how connected you are to the past. I feel like, uh, you know, I, I woke up the other day and was like, holy shit, what is happening? I am going to call Susan and see if she can explain this exact moment to me. And it seems like where your head goes sort of naturally is to the history of the place. Has that always been how you were wired or is that a function of having worked many different jobs, having lived daily news cycles for a long time and now being in this, um, you know, Susan's journal from Washington role. <laughs> Susan's journal of, you know, the craziness. Um, thank you for that question, Max. Uh, no, seriously, actually, thank you, because I think you're right that I, I've always gravitated toward history. And that was, I think, one of the reasons that I came to Washington in the first place. And yet I find myself in the last few years relying to that more than ever. Uh, and so I find it both a comfort and a guide, but also, you know, in an unsettling moment, if we're going back to first principles, understanding where these crises have occurred before, what some of the political solutions were, what part of Washington is ever thus, and, you know, what part is, are we seeing something new added to the story, has always been the way I interpret Washington, think about it. And uh, of course, we're in this weird moment where we're kind of very self-consciously understanding that we're writing it too. Uh, this is really, however it's ultimately remembered, it's it's already quite clear uh, that the, the Trump phase in American political life is is going to be puzzled over, written over, just as people are literally still producing new books about Watergate and, you know, about... Lincoln, you know, this is this is going to be, um, you know, he may displace Richard Nixon, <laughs> you know, as the subject of, of of writing for future errors. So, you know, wanting to think of it in that context does come naturally. Certainly, Peter and I are surrounded by by piles of books about not just previous presidents, but you know, about the place. I think that's the subject that was most interesting to me always was. Washington as historical subject, the Capitol itself, uh, and, you know, not just the White House, but its interplay with, with the other buildings. Given that connection to history, do you feel pressure to get this right? Yes, absolutely. Well, while recognizing that, of course, we're also going to get it wrong. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm not like, there are a million opinion writers in Washington or opinion columnists, that's not, never was something that, that really interested me that much. I, you know, not, some people just are very ideological or they have, uh, you know, a policy set of prescriptions that they're eager to find ways to, to proselytize for and to publicize for, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of opinion writing that is from, you know, people who are active players in either party, uh, who are essentially advancing a partisan agenda, and I don't mean just because they have opinions that are liberal or conservative, but literally, you know, if you look at what they're doing, they're sort of making the points that they think advance uh, their partisan goals. You know, that wasn't interesting to me, uh, although, of course, I'm a consumer of, of, of a lot of that kind of writing. But I, I think that you want to do something that, that can hold up. How much does your reporting impact the way you're thinking about the story, when you're trying to make sense of it in the way that you're describing, when you're trying to write from a position of 
slight remove make sense of the place in this moment? How much to the people who are making these decisions, who are living these lives, how much do they help you do that? Yeah, that that is a good question. And I would say certainly we've seen a shift over time. Uh, you know, there is now such a robust, you know, kind of magosphere uh, that has its own, you know, kind of figures and its own logic. And it's, you know, it's more and more withdrawn. Uh, and that, of course, is part of a, a long-term development that predates Trump, which is the fragmenting of the media and the fragmenting of the politics. So you're, you know, Barack Obama, by the end of his presidency, wasn't giving an awful lot of interviews to the Washington Post. You know, he was narrow casting in his own way as well. So, you know, it, it, I've seen that it has become harder and harder, uh, you know, over time. Um, but the flip side is there's this proliferation of ways in which you can can see what these guys are saying and, you know, connect to what their conversation is. And I think it's important to do that regardless of whether you're, you know, sitting down face to face. And I was amazed, by the way, people just like to tell their story. It's human psychology. Uh, and so, you know, we were able to do more than 300 original interviews for the divider after uh, Trump left office, you know, virtually all of them with with Trump's own appointees and, and, and lifelong Republicans or, you know, career national security types. And, you know, all his own appointees, they, they want to tell their side of the story. So that's still true today. And did the book have an impact on those relationships? Are you still in with all those folks? Because they're about to be uh, back in the news. <laughs> well, look, there are different reasons that they talked with us, right? So many of the ones who were closest to Trump, I would say, they wanted to understand what was in the book or what was in about them. So they're not necessarily, you know, people who are talking day in and day out. Uh, but And what do you tell them when they ask that? Well, I think we'd ask them, you know, absolutely. You know, if something was in the book about somebody, we, we ran it by that person. Um, you know, but often, again, this was a very vicious, infighting-driven kind of culture. That's what Trump has always encouraged around him. So, you know, they often want to know, well, what about, forget about me, you know, what about my enemy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that... Again, that that's human nature that applies. Um, you know, Donald Trump, he just is a believer, as you know, in the kind of New York Post, at least spell my name right, school of publicity. And, you know, he'll take any of it. And we were shocked. He essentially volunteered to be interviewed for our book. I don't think he had any illusions that this was going to be some hagiography. Uh, but, um, you know, we sat for two conversations with him at Mar-a-Lago, I think, you know, totaling maybe hours, you know, three and a half hours or more of conversations. And, you know, they weren't what I would call the most helpful interviews in, in history. It's very hard to get Donald Trump to answer a question. He doesn't speak with nouns and verbs and periods. But still, those guys are engaged in wanting to, to tell their story and to, to shape their narrative. Did he help shape his narrative? Is there anything <laughs> that he told you that changed the way you guys thought about that book? You know, it was revealing, right, in the way that, that Trump is is revealing. Um, again, he's not what you would call a fact witness in any situation. And so that was frustrating because there were, of course, a lot of questions you'd really love to know the answer to. But, you know, look, the very first thing that the guy said to us in the second interview 
was a complete contradiction and, you know, sort of set of lies about stuff he said in the first interview. <laughs> so he was, if nothing else, very Trumpy. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's beneficial uh, to see that up close and, and in person, I would say. You wrote that book and the Baker book and one about your time in Russia with your husband. I'm curious about how that works. You've talked about it some elsewhere, but um, it seems maybe challenging. How do you do that? How do you write a book with your partner, let alone three? <laughs> well, we are, uh, you know, still on speaking terms, so that's a good thing. Um, and uh, impressive. You know, we are we are just getting started on on another one uh, that sort of brings some of these stories full circle. The idea is going to be to write about um, the five U.S. presidents who have tried and really failed in many ways to deal with Vladimir Putin since he came to power. And, you know, sort of a big Washington book again. Uh, you know, it's not a Moscow book. It's a Washington book. It's a story about what is the U.S. role in the world uh, in this post, post-Cold War era. Um, but yes, yeah, so we're still we're still talking, we're still collaborating. We're you know I recognize it's very unusual. We're super lucky, but we started out working together, and so maybe that's some of the some of the secret. Um, you know, we um, people there used to be this slogan back in the days of classified ads, which I know no one ever even remembers anymore. But there used to be this thing called print newspapers, and there used to be these things called classified advertising in them that were like the mainstay of the business of these newspapers and the Washington Post used to have this slogan, like I got my job from the Washington Post. Uh, you know, well, I was lucky enough to start working at the Post in the Post newsroom as a deputy national editor for investigations a week before the huge story of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky broke. And Peter, as the junior White House reporter, was uh, the one who got stuck uh, uh, on the, the, the Clinton uh, affairs beat. And so we were lucky enough to meet each other and to, to start working together before we became a couple. I have this theory of marriages that they're baked into the moment that you met. <laughs> so, so in some ways, it makes sense to me that if you guys started by collaborating, you've continued to do it. I still have like um, uh, maybe prying questions about it, though, professionally, because now you no longer are working for the same place. You're writing these books together, but like you are reporting the same story for different publications in different ways. But I imagine there is some world in which you are talking to the same people. Do you guys talk about that? Do you like compete for scoops? Are there like, uh, are there walls up? Do you guys just talk about this shit all the time? How does it work? <laughs> well, I do think, look, it's been a running conversation no matter where we've worked, uh, you know, the same place, different places, uh, for all of it. And I feel so lucky that that's the case. Not all couples are like that. We had some some friends, I won't say who they were, who were uh, married correspondents who worked for different news organizations. And they were not only competitive, but like hyper competitive about it. Like, you know, the, the wife would literally like go in the closet to like, you know, to talk with the source. Uh, you know, that is not that is not our way. Uh, and, you know, we have, I think, you know, so benefited uh, I feel enriched, you know, every day by being able to, you know, have it as a running conversation. We have very different roles, uh, and we have pretty much throughout the time that we've worked at separate news organizations who so are doing very different things, but always, you know, we have enough of the same interests. It's 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 invaluable to be able to, you know, kind of hash it out and talk about it and 
it's a running conversation. Do you guys ever have like um, sources who play you off of each other in some way? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, but then again, how would I know, right? If that I were guess happening. So. I guess so. I would just imagine like, you know, you both talk to the same person on the same day and then go and have dinner and they told you different things. That could happen. I suppose that could definitely happen, but it's more likely that we would, you know, sort of share the sense of what, you know, that person is is saying. I mean, you know, it's much more... I think we both benefit from the the collective work that we're doing. You've been covering Washington in one way or another for a long time. So has he. You've been having this long conversation with him and with readers. Do you feel like there's anything that you're missing about this story that you're trying to tell from having been inside of it for so long? Like, I wonder if there's anything you feel like having been inside it for this long, you take for granted or miss or something now? You know, there's a great benefit to to leaving Washington and then coming back, or frankly, leaving anywhere and then coming back. I think you have, you know, much more wide open eyes. And politics takes on a logic of its own. Washington, like a lot of company towns takes on a logic of its own and things that can seem crazy, you know, to the rest of the country, the rest of the world somehow end up making uh, more sense than they should uh, here, you know, when you're just doing that all day long, every day. So I actually think our, our times away from Washington uh, uh, as foreign correspondents or even taking the time off to, to write books is invaluable to understanding Washington, actually, and the ability to maintain perspective. Uh, that that is a really, really important thing. And also, you know, to sort of get it, you know, like when you've been in a war zone and, you know, you have to like find your way around. It's not just a metaphorical checkpoint, but an actual checkpoint. You know, it can it can give you a little bit of a sense of perspective about, you know, is the Iowa caucus really all that big of a deal or not? <laughs> Answer, not really. Right, exactly. And, you know, OK, which which of these crazy things really, really matters? And And frankly, one of the reasons that I have change gears in the last few years to write a column like this uh, is because the warning lights and the indicator lights, you know, have been blinking red uh, here in Washington in a way that they have around the world. And I do think that in the insular political culture and the world of political reporting, that was not necessarily immediately apparent, even though it is now. And, you know, it was many of my friends and colleagues who had spent time, you know, either as in the government or as a journalist uh, in the former Soviet Union, who were the most concerned in, in 2016, understanding, and I'm not talking about email hacking here, what I'm talking about is about the threat to democracy and what it means to have the rise of this kind of authoritarian-minded, you know, right-wing demagogic politician and people who have looked at what happened in Hungary and Poland and Turkey and Russia you know, so that's some of the experience. And, you know, in, in some ways, the years spent not only as a correspondent, but, you know, as 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 editor of foreign policy, like those informed why this is a moment for writing and speaking out uh, in a different way and making reference to history and the like. So, you know, to me, that is a kind of a mission statement for, for what's been going on the last few years. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like in some way, the question that I called you up wanting to ask was like, are you sort of strung out and losing your mind having seen this light blinking like right outside your bedroom window for, 
years and years. And what I've heard you say is that the answer is um, the thing that keeps you from feeling that way is thinking about it historically. Well, that's an excellent and much better way of summing it up than I would have done so myself. Um, you know, I remember on January 6th, and it was in the middle of the pandemic. And so, you know, we were all here, uh, you know, working, me, Peter for the New York Times, our son, who I believe it, I may be the only mother who's appeared on this podcast after her son has appeared on the podcast. So that's really where I'm hoping to go down in history. But I do have one question about Theo for you at the end. All three of us were, were here and he was doing school from home, uh, you know, his senior not even his senior year in high school. I'm sorry, his junior year <laughs> in high school. And Peter had to write a news analysis for the Times, which is why there wasn't enough time to do that and be up at the Capitol or we would have been there. And we had watched Trump's speech at noon. And then um, I think both Peter and Theo had gone back upstairs to their respective offices. And I was still watching at you know, one o'clock and one thirty as as events started to go. And I, I saw I was sitting by myself, therefore, in the living room at the moment when the first barriers went down of the crowd and they started charging towards the Capitol. And so I started screaming upstairs, like, you know, you know, like and and in that moment what I said was, it's happening. It's happening. And, you know, I had been waiting for something terrible to happen without really knowing exactly what it would be. But somehow in that exact moment, you know, I knew this is it, you know, it's happening. So what's going to happen now? <laughs> the Biden-Trump rematch is, is happening. Okay. All right. Well, I'll just try and stay connected to history over these next several months. <laughs> I'm not sure, by the way, that history is quite so soothing as perhaps I, I, you know, like have made it out to be, but at least it's something to read and to think about. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe not soothing, but uh, grounding in some way. Grounding. Grounding. I got one more question, I'll let you go. And it is about your son, Theo, who I talked to last year uh, about his incredible reporting as a freshman at Stanford about the school president. And I wondered as I prepared to talk to you today, how you feel about the journalism world that your son is entering and how it compares to the one that you started in. How do you feel about this industry that he's going to inherit? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, first of all, I should say that, uh, you know, it's not entirely clear to me that he'll, he'll end up being a journalist, uh, but that's a question for him, not for us. Um, it's 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 in crisis like like the rest of American life, but it's also never been more necessary. And you know, if this is a moment for first principles, these are institutions. Look at our universities; it's not just Stanford. Uh, you know, this is the age of the the college journalist. Uh, in some of these communities, with the death of local papers, those college papers are the only ones uh, that are out there covering not only their colleges but the politics in a state capital or uh, you know in a county and. So I, I feel like indispensable, urgent, in crisis, but every generation has to renew its view of what, you know, makes that real. And, um, you know, these guys are actually, they're better reporters 
than we were, you know, and they're amazing, right? They are able to navigate a world of so much more information. They're forced to be so much more sophisticated at such a young age. Uh, you know, I look at the young reporters on Capitol Hill, they're way better than we were uh, in some ways when uh, we started out covering things at Roll Call. Certainly they're faster, sharper, and more competitive, although perhaps they don't didn't don't have the time, you know, to sit back and, you know, read a big book about the speakers of the house who came before. So, you know, things are lost, but things are gained. You were saying earlier that um, Washington reporters are uh, more idealistic than people might realize. And I feel like that answer was very evident of it. <laughs> well, I'm sometimes accused, uh, uh, not only by my family, but my uh, fellow podcasters uh, uh, at the New Yorker, my wonderful colleagues, Jane Marin, Evan Osos, they're always teasing me and saying that I'm the pessimist among the three of us. Uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't necessarily think that's true. I find it grounding, I won't say soothing, uh, to have as clear-eyed a view as possible about where we're at. Well, this conversation has been uh, not exactly soothing, but grounding. <laughs> Susan, thank you so much. Max, thank you. You're fantastic, and I feel like I've, I've learned about myself from listening to you. You're a great interviewer, so thank you for that. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode. Thanks to him. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox, with whom we make the show. And thanks so much to Susan Glasser. We'll see you next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.